The Guardian. has been a big year for Australian culture. The Biennale Brouhaha, a Booker Prize winning novel, Sia, Iggy Azalea and Five Seconds of Summer. Welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast, the Year in Review episode. I'm Alex Spring and I write about arts and culture for the Guardian Australia. I'm here with some of the Guardian Australia culture team and we're joined by some very special guests. Nancy Groves, the culture editor for The Guardian Australia and recent Tasman file. Nancy will be talking about her perspectives on the film and television industry in 2014. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Alex. Anna Madeline, a writer and researcher for Guardian Australia Culture and our font of all art knowledge. Anna is going to examine the long-term implications of the Biennale funding controversy. Hi, Anna. Hello. The first of this month's special guests, Bridget Delaney, the features editor for The Guardian Australia and an expert on all things literary. Bridget is going to pick out her literary high points for 2014. Hi, Bridget. Hey, Alex. And our other very special guest, Eamon Flack, the incoming artistic director of Sydney's Belvoir Theatre, director, dramaturg and overall theatrical expert. Who better than Eamon to give 2014 a thumbs up or a thumbs down from a performing arts perspective? Hi, Eamon. Hi. And we're all going to choose our highlights from an excellent year in Australian music. So first up, films and television. Financially, Australian cinema is still in the doldrums, only taking 2.28% of box office to date. And Australian television continues to be swamped by international exports and reality shows, which sadly looks set to continue in 2015. But the creative output hasn't slackened off. The small-budget horror film The Babadook, starring Essie Davis, has had great international acclaim. The Exorcist director called it the scariest film he had ever seen. Large-scale international productions like Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, Kate Blanchett's Truth and Kate Winslet's The Dressmaker are all being filmed in Australia and there have been some great local film productions including The Little Death and The Rover. Australian television highlights include an Emmy nomination for the ABC's Please Like Me, the much-debated First Contact on SBS and the deliciously soapy miniseries In Excess Never Tear Us Apart. Definitely a mixed year. So, Nancy, as a newcomer to Australian film and television, what was your highlight for 2014? Well, it has been a great way of getting to know Australia. I arrived here in July to take up the position of culture editor and, of course, sort of switched on my television almost immediately. And I'm, I can't lie, I have, I've, the reality TV has been totally unavoidable and I, I, I would say that I actually even have indulged in it a bit as a kind of cosy way of getting, getting into the Australian mindset. But happily, I actually think the highlight of, of this year is, is perhaps um, a, an individual, which is Josh Thomas, who's Please Like Me, has sort of done exactly what uh, the title says. Guardian readers can't get enough of it. Um, and, you know, when we interviewed him earlier this year, uh, uh, under the tagline, the, the best TV show you've never seen, it, it turned out we were wrong because most of our readers seem to have seen it and half of them at least loved it. Um, you know, he's picked up the Emmy uh, nomination much deservedly and it's interesting now to see him talked about outside, the, uh, outside Australia as much as here, uh, mostly by countries that can't yet see this show and are already hearing about it and really want to see it. Um, I wonder if anybody else has mm. watched it. Eamon, did you see Please Like I've, Me? I've seen an episode and I loved it. Why did you love it? Because I think, because Josh Thomas is a really damn good actor, actually, in a really peculiar way. He's, he just attacks it and he doesn't apologise and he's quick. 
Mm. He doesn't spell anything out. He does it, he like he, you know, he leaves you to to catch up with him. Um he has the advantage of doing his own writing, which always helps and he writes really well. He's mm. great. I think he's terrific. I think it is absolutely Josh's triumph, um, the, the writing and, and the acting. And, and we saw actually away from the sitcom itself how much of a chord he struck um, when he appeared on the famous um, um, Mental Health Week question time and mm-hmm. took um, Bob Catter to task. I think he is who he is. Uh, Monica Tan, our, our, our culture writer, had the chance to meet him in the midst of the second series and found him to be much the same character in real life as he is on the show. And I think we see that a lot in TV at the moment, that writers, uh, and actors who are prepared to put a lot of themselves into their characters um, really win a, win an audience. And I think that's why perhaps sometimes Josh Thomas is presented in the same light or talked about in the same light as Alina Dunham. Uh, <laughs> I think, I know everyone kind of wants to find that new star uh, and, and maybe uh, that's why we're willing him on so much. But, you know, the fact that he's struck a chord not just in Australia, but in the US where Pivot screens this show and also uh, even in the UK via YouTube and stuff shows that he, he may well break out. And, you know, we're heading into the third series and it's not every show that gets gets that third series. You know, it's it's rare to re- be recommissioned in the, in the way that he has been. Mm, absolutely. He is in some very annoying television commercials, though, and I think <laughs> people that don't watch um, his TV show have seen him in these commercials, and so there'd be some people who really like him and they love his show, but there'd also be a large, um, I think, segment of the population that is annoyed by him without even having seen um, his people, program. People have an issue with the voice, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. And his persona, it's slightly daffy, um, mm. but charming. Slightly daffy. He he does feel like a living cartoon in a really mm. marvellous way. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, did you have any other um, highlights from 2014 in terms of films and TV? I thought that Charlie's Country was a pretty extraordinary um, cultural document of any sort, to be honest, quite apart from the fact that it had an extraordinary um, central performance, like the sort of um, naked nakedness on screen that you just you you very very rarely see with David Gulpil it was really um glorious piece of acting and I think it was glorious because it there was a lot of of life in it that wasn't in fact acting at all I think it was such a sort of um revealing self-portrait and kind of coruscating and and yet behind it were some pretty enormous ideas about the sort of passing of an entire way of life but told you know really through through um a single performance and and a handful of kind of really beautiful, um, very friendly um, support performances. Mm, Stunning film. And he was recognised for that. You know, he got he got the nod at Cannes, didn't he? And I think that uh, there's been a lot of recognition for Australian talent this year. Um, Albeit sometimes outside of Australia, uh, <laughs> and I and I, I feel bad being the one saying that with my British voice, but uh, but I think Luke Buckmaster, our film critic, um, we're doing a lot of year in review pieces at the moment, and Luke's filed a piece about how it's been actually a really great year for Australian film, but the the, the tragedy of it is that some of those films have not really been uh, given the release here in Australia that's allowed Australians to see them. Um, you know, and that was the case with the Babadook, famously, that it really was released to so few screens that maybe Australia would have taken that to heart as much as the rest of the world, but they weren't given a chance. This is a perennial question, though I suspect it gets talked about every year, the extent to which Australian um, products, artistic products, have to kind of be recognised overseas before they get recognised in Australia. It's a 
bit of a habit, really. It is yeah. a cyclical thing, and I think Absolutely. I've picked up yeah. on that already. But 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 what I think has been attacked this year is really the distribution systems. That like it isn't a case of them. It's just given the chance, Australian audiences would love them, but they're just not being given the chance. Yes, and it sounds like Charlie's Country really had a kind of second win when it when it went. You know, it hit the front page of iTunes pretty quickly and. I think that did, you know what I mean? It felt like it had a kind of second release in a way. Which is why I think the um, demise or the end of Margaret and David's show is, is a blow to the film industry because it let people know about films that might have limited release that would mm. be only on three or four screens for a couple of weekends. Um, and it got that sense of urgency. If you have to see this film, it's really good, but it's only on for a short time. And I wonder now if those sort of films, um, the smaller films, the independent Australian films, are going to get quite uh, the hearing that they once did. It will maybe fall to festivals to pick up to pick up that slack, but again, and we're seeing quite a lot of festivals now tour Australia, um, the same programs, but kind of going around a lot of cities, which I see as a really positive thing. But um, but yeah, people need the chance, uh, and 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 there needs to be an afterlife. So if people get excited about a film in that festival context, they can actually then take it on. I mean, the Mule. We've I was going to say the Mule uh, this month exactly released thing, yeah. clever. Well, we weren't. We couldn't really work out whether it was a kind of forced decision to release straight to DVD or a very good strategy. Um, but it has done really well. It went straight to the top of the iTunes charts here and um, has been getting really positive reviews, uh, not least from uh, from Luke Buckmaster um, on our site. Um, a scatological hit. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's also some other controversial television. Uh, there's obviously First Contact as well. Anna, you, you looked at First Contact. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I did, actually. Um, I I don't have a TV this year at my house, so I haven't been watching all that much. But I did look at a few episodes of First Contact and thought it was really quite powerful. Um, so what it is is they send six white Australians who haven't had contact with Aboriginal people before into Aboriginal families and communities to learn about how they live and you see this kind of um well first of all it's quite shocking how racist some of those people were Mm, before they went out and then you kind of see them turn around as they learn that um the way they live isn't very far from how remote communities live in a lot of ways Mm. absolutely monica tan published a great article on first contact as well which which got a great deal of attention didn't it What was her argument? Well, for Monica, it's been a really interesting year. Um, She has been uh, spent a fair amount of the summer in Arnhem Land and at the Gama Festival. Um, Monica herself uh, has lived outside of Australia for the last five years in China, and she wrote a very powerful piece responding to the criticisms that the casting of uh, of First Contact was such that uh, they were sending kind of you know, sort of almost caricature figures of racists into these communities, that it was a sort of a reality TV approach to things. And she said, I'm 31, and to be honest, I've had my first contact, in inverted commas, true first contact with indigenous communities this year, that actually this is a really common universal thing across across a lot of Australians, that even if you kind of uh, make, even if you uh, sort of nod towards uh, understanding the indigenous politics and ethics actually how much how real how much knowledge do you really have of of those communities and and i think it you know she was quite brave to put her hand up and say i could easily be one of the people on first contact i think that's why it was so powerful because a lot of people would be in that same situation Mm. i've got some the indigenous playwright um jason desantis who's from the tiwi islands and 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 darwin was really um saddened by the series and I think that's probably fairly common um, indigenous response to it, but and it, it raises this question about like as 
indigenous content becomes more and more prominent on our screens with um, you know, black comedy recently and, and Redfern now. I loved black comedy. It was glorious. Yeah. But the, the, this, this, there's this thing which is like how much indigenous storytelling is for white people and how much indigenous content is for indigenous people and 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 who are those indigenous people and you know like the com- the kind of wonderful explosion of complication around that stuff is really interesting but I, but I but I am fascinated that, that a lot of my indigenous friends have looked at first contact and gone are we still really only at this point which is why black comedy was so special because it felt like Indigenous people taking the piss out of themselves. And I think once a group can do that, who've been, you know, largely oppressed, when they suddenly can see beyond oppression and, you know, and make a show which shows that they have the same problems with relationships and work and socialising as everyone else, it's it's quite, I don't know, I found it like quite liberating television. It's a pretty original, particular streak of humour as well, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. dark, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with, um, I guess, going back to factual or reality-style programming, the other two things that really stuck out this year as being great television um, was Outback Choir, which was mm. an ABC Arts documentary. It just went for an hour. It kind of was a quiet, one of those quiet programs that... You know, if you just happened to be sitting there and watching it, you know, you it was just the most beautiful treat, but it didn't get much hype and it really deserves a second look on iView. Um, but it's about a woman who goes from Sydney to the outback and gathers all these children, some of whom are Indigenous, others not, into a choir. And it's the complete antithesis of those awful kind of reality TV shows like The Voice where there's very little authenticity and, and this feels like a really real, very rich... Um, experience for the kids and, and also for the, um, the the people who were who were watching it. Um, and the other show which which really hit a nerve with me was What's the Catch? SBS, Matthew Evans, talking about sustainable fishing. Mm-hmm. And he took viewers to prawn farms in Thailand and um, onto various boats and uh, to very kind of posh restaurants in Melbourne and Sydney where fish is, is served, often very expensive fish, and it's come from really weird and terrible conditions. So I thought those two shows were beautifully shot, beautifully produced, really illuminating. It's interesting. It does seem to all be about documentary-style shows that are the things that are pushing the programming buttons at the moment. The real reality. The real reality, right? Mm. <laughs> what does that mean? As opposed to reality television. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you, reality. You get My mind just shook. <laughs> you get you get a sense, yeah, you get a sense editing our T V column week in, week out that reality T V is all there is, but Yeah. I have to confess that T V has sort of left my um my cultural life. Really? Actually. Wow. Yep. Why? What do you mean? You're just not interested? Um, you don't have a TV set like Anna? I don't know. It's sort of mm-hmm. just like my my TV's not tuned in, right? Um, it's I, I just feel like there's a, there's enough going on, there's enough mediums and forms without me engaging in television much anymore. Peter Carey um, tweeted or someone tweeted Perry, Peter Carey today saying, "If you watch television, you'll never write a book." You know, so <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, he would say that. Some people would say if you, if you tweeted, you never write a book. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you could just compile your tweets into a book. I mean, that, that's maybe the future of biography. 2015, the year David Marr gets on Twitter. Oh, I don't know if that can be... Can occur. Anyway, we can try. Gosh. 
Uh, well, that's actually the perfect segue into our next segment, where, where we will be talking about books. But uh, but first of all, this is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. Tell us what Australian films and television you have been watching this year. Visit us on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture, and tell us what your highlights were. Uh, later, we'll look at the performing arts highlights for 2014 with Eamon. But first to books. Arguably the high point was Richard Flanagan's Booker Prize win for his novel The Narrow Road to the Deep North, but there were plenty of other Australian literary stories. Last year's The Rosie Project walked away with the Book of the Year Award at the Australian Book Industry Awards, with the follow-up The Rosie Effect already out, and Christos Chokas finally released his follow-up to The Slap with Barracuda with one of the most unforgettable opening lines ever and decidedly mixed reviews. Bridget, you edit the book section of Guardian Australia Culture and you're the author of Wild Things, which came out in May. So tell us, what was your literary high point for 2014? Well, apart from my own book, um, <laughs> there were many highlights. I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of Helen Garner, so I had high anticipation for her book, This House of Grief, which took years to write. She um, sat through, uh, you know, appeals of... of um, the Farquharson case, which was the guy that drove his kids into a dam on Father's Day. Um, and the book was held up for various legal reasons. But it's come out and it's quite different to what I expected. I thought it would be, she would be in it a lot more. She's often a character in her, in her own nonfiction, as we've seen with Joe Cinque and The First Stone. But she really kind of um, pulled back in the telling of this story. And it was a book really about evidence law and how evidence is presented and why some things are withheld from juries and why some things are, uh, are presented. So it was fascinating from a, I guess, a legal point of view. But she also asks some really interesting questions about if he did do this, why did he do it? And, you know, it's such an unfathomable act. And Ghana's a master. She's um, scalpel sharp and she really delved into this case um, in, in a very intense way. And it was a great read. Um, look, another favourite book is um, Acute Mis Misfortune by Eric Jensen. He's um, the editor of the Saturday paper. He's a bit of a, a wonderkind. Um, he met um, Adam Cullen when he was still a teenager, the artist Adam Cullen, and Cullen invited him into his life to write a, a biography. Um, and the book's quite short. It's novella length, but there's so much packed into it. And, of course... Cullen dies whilst um, Eric is still sort of completing this biography. And um, so it's a very dark book, but I, I thought it was a beautifully written. Um, a Bare Bone of Fact by David Walsh, his memoir is really special. Um, it's a beautiful looking book. It's, it's hardback with gilt edges and um, beautiful plates throughout. And he tells the story of his life and Mona in short, sharp, funny chapters. Um, it's subversive, it's weird. Sometimes it looks like it hasn't been edited, which in other hands could be dreadful, but he pulls it off and um, yeah, it's a great book. Um, of course, Flanagan's book, which I really loved, um, but did find some of it hard going. I, I think I prefer Flanagan when he talks rather than when he writes. Um, and uh, yeah, because I, I can get bogged down a bit in, in the... Um, in the kind of intense, vivid language of his writing, but he's clear as crystal when he does speeches. So, um, and Omar Musa, Here Come the Dogs, was a really great book. And on my uh, bedside table is um, The Bush by Don Watson. 
So there's some of my picks. Also, David Mars, The Prince, excellent book um, about George Powell. Absolutely. Nancy, mm. you're nodding your head at a lot of those. Which was your pick? Um, well, I also very much enjoyed David Walsh's book. Um, I've sort of read three Mona books this, this year, The Making of Mona, David Walsh's um, autobiography, and indeed Monanisms, which is the kind of catalogue from, from, from the museum itself, because I've made my first trip there. I find Walsh an enigma. I think I might have chatted about this on the last podcast, so I probably shouldn't go into too much detail, but I can't quite work him out. Every time you think you've got him pinned down as a goodie or a kind of or a good baddie um he alludes he kind of alludes he alludes sort of that that description and um he i know really admires kurt vonnegut and uh so in writing his own in the memoir i think he aspires slightly to that style fans of vonnegut might like this too um but he yeah i'm not surprised there's bits that didn't get edited who could edit him i mean certainly <laughs> when you see him live um uh, surrounded by these powerhouse of curators and uh, and a very strong female leadership team that Mona has, um, yeah, uh, he's 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 not easy to contain. I think his 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 car space at um, at Mona is famously marked up as God's parking space. Right? It is God and God's mistress is for his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. Wife. Yeah. So I think one of the great things about literary awards, much maligned often, is that they give writers a platform on which to talk away from their writing. And we saw that with the Prime Minister's Literary Awards this month. Um, Richard Flanagan has famously donated his shared uh, half of of the uh, fund, uh, $40,000 uh, to the Indigenous Literary Foundation. And when he was talking about why he did that, he uh, he he cited his father an influence on his novel too with this amazing quote that I can't quite remember but uh, I think yeah. I recall it. it it goes along the lines of um, money's like shit if you pile it up it stinks and if you spread it around things can grow yeah fantastic quote it's interesting you said you prefer him speaking to writing because I, I understand that the, that the writing on the page sometimes is a little sort of like there's too much language or something mm. in a way but I I find when he speaks that there's something wonderfully, um, he's bold, he's courageous, he's slightly irrational, yeah. and it's very clear, but but it's also, um, um, it, it, sometimes it feels like he's, he's a bit of a radical in something in a way. Well, yeah, he's a radical because he talks about love in a way that doesn't really get talked about. Like, he sees a discussion about love in the same way he sees a discussion about asylum seeker policies. Like, you can't talk about asylum without talking about love because love drives compassion and compassion changes policies. So he's got that connection that novelists can make on the page about connecting big policy and big picture things that are happening in Australia with with emotions that we all share. And I I think no one's talking in that way in Australia at the moment. I completely agree. And it's it's so refreshing, and it's wonderful that he that he insistently claims the right to do that as mm. a writer. Mm. And I think Andrew Bavell's keynote speech at the at the National Playwrights um, Workshop this year as well was a similar thing. As someone whose whose task is normally to kind of put it all into the work, standing up and speaking for themselves, and just resolutely, determinedly refusing to kind of buy into the demands of political discourse, but just speaking, you know what he felt he needed to say. And it's the kind of discussions that people have privately at dinners or with friends um, when they're talking about politics and they're really despairing. They're not using clinical, clear 
policy no, language. Right. They're, they're talking about how they feel. Like, this policy doesn't feel right. And, and you don't hear that mm. language very much. You don't hear that attack that that sort of those those imaginative leaps very much at the moment. Mm. But so I love that writers are speaking as well as writing. Yeah. I've heard yeah. that said Absolutely. that that was why really yeah. the most powerful speeches of the Wetland Memorial were made by an actress and uh, and an activist, not by any of the politicians. Yeah. You know that actually <laughs> we can't really turn to our our kind of classic politicians to talk about feeling in that way. Just on politics, it's this I should mention as well. This has been a really big year for political um, memoir and biographies. So we've had Joe Hockey. Um, we've had Wayne Swan, we've had uh, Julia Gillard's book, My Story. Um, we've had John Faulkner and um, Gareth Evans all releasing books. And none of them, I must say, have cut through. I don't know what the sales are on any of them. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not hearing people quoting from Gareth Evans' book <laughs> on... Maybe they are in certain circles. <laughs> but um, a lot of politicians are releasing books. And um, say, for example, Joe Hockey, I, I don't feel like his stories really played out yet. So I was unsure why a book on, on him was commissioned. Mm. Um, it was interesting as well, John Howard's book on Menzies, which was kind of curious. Howard's book sold, like his first book sold really well. It just did so well for such a long period of time. And it might have been that the publishers went to him and said, please write us another book, anything you want. And he said, okay, Menzies. And they're <laughs> like, oh no, okay. <laughs> You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For all our book news and reviews, head over to theguardian.com, click on the culture section, then click on books. Coming up, we're going to talk about the controversy around this year's Sydney Biennale and what its implications have been for the Australian art world. We're also going to nominate our favourite albums for 2014 and we want to hear yours. But first, was 2014 a good year for theatre and the performing arts in general? Eamon Flack, incoming artistic director at Belvoir Theatre, is here to give us his verdict. There was a mix of great classics and interesting new works at the major theatre companies Macbeth and Serrano at STC, Glass Menagerie and Brothers Rec at Belvoir, The Sublime and Glen Gary, Glen Ross at MTC and A Streetcar Named Desire and Kate Cherry's The Seagull at Black Swan. And there has also been some great new work pushing the boundaries at festivals. But who better than Eamon Flack, the incoming artistic director of Belvoir Theatre, to lead the discussion on this? Eamon, theatrically speaking, has 2014 been a good year or a bad year? Speaking as someone who has made some work this year. This is a really <laughs> treacherous question <laughs> Look, okay, no, I don't think it has been. Really? Yep. Why not? No. Why not? Um, I, think, I think that there's been some great highlights. I think there have been some wonderful pieces of work and, and certainly Brothers Rec comes to mind and I know, it, it, I know it's a show at Belvoir where I work but I just think that that was a, a, a brilliant piece of writing from a, a new writer. Um, it was wonderfully directed. It was a, a wonderful ensemble performance. It broke some new ground um, in terms of what it was about, I thought that was really glorious. Um, I thought that that Matt Lutton's revival of of um, Night on Bald Mountain of Patrick White's play was um, just a fantastic piece of staging. But so that, look, look, there's definitely been some highs, but on the on the whole, I, I don't think it's been a wonderful year. 
What Ouch. About, yeah, right. Out <laughs> indeed. Out indeed. Well, yeah. picking up on, on your point about uh, about Brothers Wreck, though, it seems like there's been quite a lot of indigenous theatre. There, I mean, Black Diggers obviously kicked off Sydney Festival uh, in January, and we were talking earlier about Big Big Heart and stick, um, Hip Bones sticking out. Uh, has It feels like indigenous theatre has kind of come in, into its own in a way. It's just not even a thing anymore. I think that... that um there's something generational that's been going on and it's like there's people like Nakia Louie who's been in black comedy as well on, on the ABC as well as writing these plays. Um, Jada Alberts who wrote Brothers Wreck. Um, Jason DeSantis who who wrote a play called Woolaman Ayu and the Seven Pamanui which yes I directed but it got a Helpman nomination. It was a small show that was commissioned by the Darwin Festival four or five years ago. It was made in a church hall on the Tiwi Islands and it got a Helpman nomination for, for best children's work and best um, new work. Like something's kind of happening and there's a confidence in these young artists. Quite a lot of them are coming out of the territory, interestingly, and they're, they are actors and writers and performers who all work together and they're moving from one thing to the other. And it feels like we're seeing something like what happened when Leah Purcell and Wesley Enoch and um, uh, Deb Mailman came out of Queensland about sort of 15 well. years ago. And Wayne. And then, you know, like sort of 25 years ago, there was this great explosion, actually not even, coming out of WA with the Noongar community. Somehow or other, there's another generational location-based, to some extent, like springing out of the territory somehow, wave of um, just playfulness, competence, um, ambition. It's It's beautiful. Mm, yep. Absolutely. What about the other bits, though? What, what about the big productions that happened this year? Um, uh, look, I, like you know, <laughs> really, I, I shouldn't talk about it. You know what I, mean? <laughs> um, I, I, I um, oh, look, it's it's just it's you know, like honestly, a mixed year. What's it like, been lacking? I, I what, adore, what have we been lacking? I I love. I adore the theatre. I completely give my life to it. Um, but it's a hard thing to do. It's really difficult. And it's difficult to program a season. It's difficult to pull a show together. And sometimes it goes well. And for some reason or other, I don't think this has been an amazing year. I, I, I don't know why. It's hard to say, really. Um, I think that it would be interesting to ask audiences about their experiences. Um, having, you know, like certainly, like the thing I love more than anything is seeing a great actor give a great performance. And I think that's probably what audiences love most of all. And I suspect it doesn't matter where that show is set or what the aesthetic of that play is. I think that the kind of essential experience of a piece of theatre is ultimately a human experience. And I, I if, you know, if you're going to put me on the spot, which, which is happening right now, <laughs> then my reflection would be that maybe I think that as a profession we've been a little bit too preoccupied by form and by our own ideas about what we can do as directors and, and all that kind of thing and not quite enough of a focus on the kind of essential, you know, like lasting, unchanging human experience of watching one person perform to a large group of people and the sheer magic that that is, no matter how daggy it might be. In fact, the daggier it is, possibly the better it is. I think you've been quite modest too because obviously the Glass Menagerie was a great night out at the theatre. I hope that so. Was, it was a fantastic night and I think for many people it was like, yes, there is something really good happening in Australian theatre. Did you feel the love from the audience? You know what? You do. <laughs> <laughs> and you need it, I tell you. Because, yeah, I, I really didn't, like Luke Mullins and Pam Rabe especially, like two masters of the craft, 
And being in a rehearsal room with them was mag magnificent and working on that play. My God, what a play. My God. But we, I didn't know if we were going to get there. I haven't told the actors this. I really didn't know if it was going to work. So when you do get into a theatre and the audience um, um, understand something of what you've gotten yourself um, lost in, the wave that's crashed over you as you've been trying to make this thing, that's, that's beautiful. And it was a beautiful night out. It was absolutely great. What about festival theatre? Did you see any festival theatre that you fell in love with? No. Nancy, Nancy and I were at Melbourne <laughs> Festival. Um, I um, couldn't get to the Melbourne Festival this year, sadly. Um, I would like to have, but um, no, I didn't. I don't have any festival theatre highlights this year. Interesting, interesting. Well, Nancy, you're a bit of a theatre fan, and uh, and you've seen some theatre since you've been. What's yeah. been your favourite? Have you had a highlight? Well, I, I, I picked this highlight with trepidation because I've, already kind of picked up on lots of vibes about popularity of certain playwrights and not since I've been here and indeed the one the writer I'm going to pick is someone who The Guardian in the past hasn't been very kind to even on an international stage but I really enjoyed Switzerland by Joanna Murray Smith and I know that she comes under certain criticism for sort of writing within a rather bourgeois milieu and, and sort of, uh, and kind of middle brow theatre middle brow theatre exactly mm. and I think you know we've taken to her account on that in the past because she is one of the Australian playwrights that's done internationally a lot. But to me, Switzerland was fantastic. I love Highsmith and I love the films that have been made about Highsmith, not least The Towns of Mr. Ripley, um, which I feel has this connection to sort of Sydney through Blanchet and, and all that. Um, but Switzerland was exactly that case in point of just two fantastic performances, particularly from another Eamon. <laughs> yes, I know. First <laughs> chance I've had to yeah. see him on stage. <laughs> Um, but also I think the sheer craft of the writing and that it's really like it is really really good it's and really I think you know you crafted. say about how you know when you feel like it's gone well and I think I think I interviewed Joanna Murray Smith before it opened and I think she had a kind of hunch or a feeling that it was going to be good for her um, but she couldn't call it yet of course because one can't <laughs> but she I know it was an intensely personal play for her to write despite the fact that it was a sort of semi -bio, sort of biographical play about Patricia Highsmith but for her it was a kind of a catharsis for a difficult two years personally for her and 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 it's a play about how close writers get to their characters and how um how tied up in knots they get with their own sort of imaginative life and so there's just so many layers of that and yet the writing is really clear the transformation of uh, of the power between Patricia Highsmith and this young kind of literary editor who comes to visit her to get to, to kind of persuade her to sign a, to write a final Ripley book. There's just this, this unbelievable play out of power over the over over the, the course of the play, and even sort of the design. You know, in a in a theatre that I'm told is quite hard to put on theatre at Sydney Opera House, but they use that very sort of wide narrow stage incredibly successfully, and it was gripping. It played out. I, I really hope. I know it's going to LA. It was commissioned by the Gaffin Playhouse, but I really hope that it, it that it travels around both Australia and the world. And just on that note of travelling theatre, I think it's good to do a bit of a shout out to Back to Back, the Geelong-based theatre yeah. for um, mm. um, people um, with or who have some disabilities. Um, not sure about the entire cast, but they went to Edinburgh Festival this year with um, Ganesh versus Third Reich, which. I think was staged in Melbourne at the Melbourne Festival many years ago, but it's toured all over the world. It's an incredible piece of theatre, and um, they did really, really well in Edinburgh. And um, they're producing, I think they're producing a, a number of plays for next year. But um, if you haven't seen them in action, they're really worth checking out.
was a massive hit in Edinburgh, yeah. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, they're astonishing, I think, back mm. to back. Mm. Yep. And they do stuff that no one else is doing. Um, they do stuff that no one else is doing in Australia, and they do stuff that no one else is really doing internationally either. Mm. I think that they're, they're, you know, very, very special. And, you know, interesting that they're an ensemble, a permanent ensemble of performers, and they're based out of the inner city. And I think they're probably good reminders to people like me about where work should come from and the circumstances in which it gets made, really. Um, but I think just picking up on this idea of travelling, I'm aware that... Um, um, one of the kind of great successes of Australian theatre in the last couple of years has been the kind of increase of international touring. And I think that's been continuing. I know OSTC has been having a lot of success with it. And um, Wild Duck recently was just um, wonderfully the toast of London. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of work continues and we're starting to see fascinating things now, like Benedict Andrews and Simon Stone have kind of departed altogether to Europe. And Benedict's work is starting to come back to us now through um, National Theatre Live with that production of... Um, of streetcar named desire, mm. um, so you know, like um, I think there's, I think there's some, I think there's some pleasure in, in that achievement, really. What's the effect of that touring overseas on on casts and crew? Is it sort of confidence? Is it skills? What what is the effect of it? I think there's definitely a confidence thing, and I think it's definitely great for for the artist and the companies involved. But I, I suspect that the long term hope should be that. Um, it means that we get better at better at making pieces of work that are, um, you know, in the 21st century about about internationalism and about globalisation. Theatre is a very, very specific medium. It's usually very based in place, very, very grounded in place. Mm. But as these international connections open up, I, it would be great to see some international co-producing that, that really changes the nature of the stories we can tell. Mm. I think that would be the great, great hope. I'd love to see a piece of work made with an Indian cast or a Sri Lankan cast and an Australian cast, for example. Um, um, that would be pretty wonderful. That would be pretty amazing. I'd, I'd actually like for next year the Australian theatre community to look at pricing. Um, I just think when there's a really hot play in town and it costs at least $100 or around $100 for a ticket, I think that's um, obscene and... Uh, you know, I know that actors have to get paid and, and sta you know, staging has to be done, but um, affordability with theatre is um, something I'd love to see tackled or I'd love to see discussed next I'd year. I'd love to see it discussed. I'm not quite... I've been thinking about it lately. I'm not quite sure what the solution is yet because, I mean, the companies at the moment are all, all working on a knife edge as it is and um, I don't know that there's any hope of, you know, funding turning up anytime soon. And certainly at Belvoir, like our production budgets are so tiny. There's no, we can't just kind of reduce the size of the set or something. But I, it does feel like the ticket price question is, is beginning to reach a, a tipping point, I suspect. I'm Alex Spring, and for more information on all the topics we're chatting about, to share or comment on this episode, head to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Guardian Australia Culture or send us a tweet at GDN Oz Culture. What was your favourite music of the year? We'll look back at some of our highlights just after we hear about the big events in the art and design world this year and later we'll be sharing our picks of the best January has to offer. Now, undoubtedly the major story for the art world was the controversy around the funding of the Sydney Biennale. Uh, which saw 28 artists threaten to boycott the festival over the links between Biennale Chair Luca Biagione Nettis and Transfield, a contractor for the Australian Network of Immigration Detention Centres. 
the chair resigned over the row, but there are rumours that he will now return now that those links have been severed. However, the story kicked off the discussion around arts funding. Have there been wider implications for the art community? Anna, you're an artist and you write about arts for The Guardian Australia. What do you think? Um, so I think, I think well, the Biennale is normally a pretty big event of the year and this year it was just for all the wrong reasons, I think. Um, it kind of all blew up in February um, with an open letter about the funding, kind of raising the issue about where this funding was coming from and kind of calling for artists to boycott and nine artists boycotted in the end. Um, some of them re-entered, I think, so I'm not sure what the actual number of artists that didn't exhibit were in the end. But So I think the implications are huge, kind of in two ways. One is what actually happened. So the, the funding has been cut from Transfield, and Luca Belgiorno-Nettis has pulled his funding out altogether. So now there are rumours that he'll be back in to fund the next one. They've also secured funding from the Nielsen family, who were the founders of White Rabbit Gallery. Um, so they've stepped their contribution up. Um, so there's that. And so in a sense, I guess it was successful in what the boycott wanted to do. But I think on the other hand, there's the implications are much bigger. And I think we haven't really started to see the full effect of them yet. Um, and it's kind of created this anxiety for both artists and for corporate sponsors. Artists have become much more aware of the responsibility to look at where their money is coming from. Um, and the kind of social ethical implications of that. And the corporate sponsors as well have kind of, um, there's a, they may not be wanting to fund things if the artists are going to boycott them as well. So there's this, this whole kind of feeling, this sense of this in the art world at the moment, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. It, al it also seems to crack open the conversation from a government point of view about saying, well, maybe you don't deserve funding then. Yes. Yeah, so Which I George, think is a slippery yeah. slope and a dangerous thing. But And, and it's, you know, like that's very much in the air uh, in, in, at the moment, kind of like, um, we're just talking about it with theatre. Who, who does pay for the arts in this country and who is it for? <laughs> who mm. gets to consume the arts in this country? And th that's what the funding conversation should be about rather than about the 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 behaviour of artists and I sort of thought the boycott was a little bit of a luxury on on the part of some of those artists. Really, actually. that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like I think you know by all means speak out, but um, um, you know I th I think that um we live in a dirty world. All money is dirty money. Exactly. Where do you draw the line? That's that's yeah. the question I keep coming back and to. Like, where do you say? No, we can't use that money, but we can use that money. But artists should be able to have some power and some agency if they feel very strongly about something to take radical action. And I think if we mm. neuter that response and say that they were behaving unreasonably, then you're kind of taking away something great that artists have, which is in some cases to speak truth to power and to be to to go against the status quo and go against the flow. And um, I quite I don't necessarily agree with the boycott, but I'm really glad that it happened. And I'm really glad that these artists had balls and they were you know yeah <laughs> but, but the brandis intervention and i speak as someone who yeah. wasn't here at the time surely that's deeply worrying mm. the the opera, opera funding is that what you're talking about no the no, brandis George statement George brandis. about oh. about you know yeah. if you're not prepared to accept certain kinds of private funding then you need to yes. consider whether we're going to give you public funding that's yes. a worrying 
point to reach. I think so. But I also think that there were a series of conversations that were happening outside of the public eye, which led Brandis and, and the government to kind of understand the situation more clearly. And, he, he, you know, he's never, he hasn't said anything like that since then. Yep. And do you think we can take that as a kind of, that that sort of... There was quite of a lot of confusion and misinformation going around behind closed doors at that time. And um, and I think that, that all sorts of things were being, all sorts of um, conclusions were being jumped to that, that have since been resiled from. I think that quite a bit of common sense kicked into play, in fact. <laughs> what about other arts happenings around the country? Did you see anything that you liked, Eamon, this year? Look, I have to, I, I have to confess that when I was thinking about this, the, the piece of art that kept coming to mind is the piece of art that I wake up to every morning, in fact, which is a print by a woman called Kitty Cantilla, who was a Tiwi Island artist who died um, 11 years ago now. And that's led me, like, it's my favourite thing. It's the thing that I, that I love most, that I own. Um, um, but it's led me to thinking a lot about um, the massive changes and perhaps the collapse in some ways of the vibrancy of the indigenous art scene and certainly there needed to be some kind of corrections happening I think that you know like it was um it was becoming a lot of the work was you know there was a lot of not very good work happening for particular economic reasons but but at the same time it feels like somehow or other through a series of policy decisions we've we've managed to massacre one of the great great Australian contributions to the cultural life of the planet and I think that's a tragedy, a real tragedy. And, you know, Nicholas Rothwell's written about this in The, in the Australian in, in, in a great way, but um, hasn't been that widely talked about, I, I feel. And yes, it's hitting people's hip pockets because lots of people stockpiled large amounts of work, assuming that it would always hold its value, and it hasn't. But it's actually the effect on the work itself, I think, is, um, is, is the real conversation have. And um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. That's not to say that, I th that, that, in fact, I think some of the greatest cultural product the country's producing at the moment is still coming out of um, places we've never heard of mm. and that's in our own country yeah. <laughs> from uh, artists we don't know. That's shocking, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yep. But I still think there's masterpieces happening, but that's on my mind. Absolutely. And Nancy, you were introduced to Indigenous art this year. So I had a sort of uh, a strange um, uh, trip of two halves in Tasmania. I, I went to Tasmania to see the opening of Matthew Barney's River and Fundament, incredibly well-known US artist, uh, which involved not only going to the exhibition at Mona, but also watching a five and a half hour art film, uh, the likes of which I will have will never see again. <laughs> um, very, uh, very intense experience uh, that you can read up about uh, um, on the Guardian site. But actually, the thing that really sticks in my head in terms of visuals is none of Barney's work, I'm afraid, Mona. Um, but actually seeing my first Emmeline Nguare um, painting in the Tasmanian um, Museum and Art Gallery. You know, the other museum in town. There is another museum in Hobart. Um, <laughs> and it has a wonderful uh, piece of her work. And I've seen her stuff reproduced. Uh, you know, I knew about it before I even came here. But the power of the first piece I actually saw in front of me was just uh, was just what well, was a feeling. Um, and uh, I've since uh, sort of seen a work or two on, the, on, on, on some private walls too. And, uh, well, those lucky people that own one of those works is all mm. I can say. Mm. Absolutely. Bridget? Um, look, I just think, uh, you know, back in Tasmania again, one of the great art sort of things or events that I've seen all year was um, Dark Mofo. So it is predominantly music, but it also had a really strong art component. component. And the way that Hobart was used as a giant stage to, to, for all these, like quite some, 
some events were quite out there and they were quite fringe, but the darkness and the coldness of Tasmania and there were huge sort of cauldrons of fire dotted all over the place and people with foggy breath and great beasts cooking on um, spits in public cauldrons. You know, it was it was an amazing spectacle and for three days it felt like being immersed in a in a gigantic piece, a gigantic mad piece of art. There's something, there's something about Tasmania, isn't there? Oh, I mean, yeah, and I actually incredible. got this sense when I interviewed Barney as well. Um, it sounds like a sort of, it, it sounds like something you'd only say if you didn't live here, but 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 you, it is the end of the world. I mean, next stop Antarctica. <laughs> um, the Aurora Australis was there in the harbour um, as 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 we arrived, and and you know you're just like this. This is a liminal space, and um, it produces a feeling when you put art in it. Uh, mm. When you combine the natural kind of surroundings with the art, it's a really magical thing. And Anna, you're a big fan of MoFo and all things Tasmanian. I am. I am. I haven't been this year, but I'm going to MoFo in January, so I'm pretty excited about that. Mm. What other yeah. arts things? You you see so many things. I do, I do. Um, I think one that's definitely worth mentioning is not an exhibition, but Tony Albert, contemporary Indigenous artist, and he won both the Basil Sellers Art Prize and the Telstra Indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Prize as well. Um, so those are two huge works to win, so I just thought that was worth mentioning. This is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think? Should there be restrictions on art funding or should the arts be entirely government funded? It's an ongoing debate. Tell us what you think on Twitter at GDN Culture. Later in the show, summer is hands down the best time of year in Australia with so much to get out and do and experience. Stick around for our picks of the best things to do in January. Our final genre is music. Australian artists have aced it this year. Sia and Iggy Azalea killed it on the international stage. Dan Sultan and Chet Faker were local favourites, both picking up a swag of ARIA awards and even five seconds of summer gave One Direction a run for their money. Um, so let's go around the table and let's talk about Australian artists that we've been listening to in 2014. I'll go first. I've had a, I've had a couple of musical obsessions this year. One is Kite String Tangle from Brisbane. Uh, uh, Danny Harley has, is amazing and I think I've listened to Arcadia a million times on repeat. It's, it's far and away the best thing I've heard for a long time. But the other band that I'm obsessed with, and this is maybe this is my dirty secret, Eamon, um, is Kingswood, who had a mega, mega, mega hit with um, I Know You Don't Love Me uh, anymore. And uh, there's a higher and sucker punch and they're just, they kill it uh, for me. They're really amazing. And they've just actually announced a new tour for 2015, which is kicking off in January um, at the Beach Hotel in Byron Bay, then going on to tour around the country until the end of March. So I definitely n- need to go and buy some tickets um, for the Sydney Metro show, um, we'll have all the we'll have all the links on site. So, um, Anna, what did you have a good musical pick this year? I really enjoy the Jezebels. Really? <laughs> yes. Why? Why I just think they're really fun. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, also, a band that have kind of uh, gone really well this year is Mustard Courage. They're kind of a smaller known band. They're from Melbourne. They're an Australian bluegrass band. Um, and they've gone on tour to America. I think they did a, a 50-stop tour in a van, road tripping around America, and that was really successful for them. So 
hopefully good things will happen next year Absolutely. as well. Now Nancy, you're a newcomer to our shores and have you fallen in love with Australian music? Oh, all sorts. We have this great thing every week called The Mix Tape that our music editor Monica Tan does and it's like a mixture of Australian, new Australian music and people visiting and it's just every week there's something great. There's two new um, Jessicas in it this week. George Maple, who's actually called Jessica Higgs, a fantastic sort of dancey ambient thing. And Montaigne, um, Jessica, Sarah, both worth checking out. And the mixtape generally is pretty worth checking out. Yeah, and we kind of very much invite invite us, uh, you know, suggestions for that because it's very much the taste of the office. Um, we kind of want them to reflect your taste too. Great, maybe I'll listen to the mixtape and I'll have something to contribute next time. One thing I will oh, say about music and it's uh, it's opera is um, I think opera is the one to watch next year in terms of how their how Opera Australia has restructured the chorus. Um, and different employment relations there. So going far more for big productions on the harbour of big name shows, less kind of um, lesser known, more difficult operas um, that might have attracted less ticket sales. So I'm, I'm really, um, next year I'm, I'm watching what um, Lyndon Tarantini's doing with Opera Australia and with the programming. And, um, and of course you're not the only one watching because there's the mm. ongoing opera review from the government as well. So I think mm. it's going to be, there'll be a lot of eyes eyes on what they achieve and what they manage to do. It feels like as an art form, <coughs> it's um, it's having to ask itself a lot of questions internationally. It's not just an Australian thing, I think, at the moment. And there's been some pretty major opera houses around the world um, come to grief this year. Um, so, I, you know, it's a, I think it's a big task. And what so is opera in the 21st on. century? Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things where you, you do tend to kind of like turn your head sideways when you try and do you know what I mean? Like um, what's happening in the news cycle and opera alongside each other, for example. It's it's definitely mm. an interesting um, meditation. <laughs> but interestingly, uh, the show that I'm really looking forward to with Opera Australia will be The Rabbits um, next year, which uh, which has Kate Miller-Heike yeah, and it has uh, Lally Katz. There's a great artist, Kate Miller-Heike. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like Death of yeah. Kling Hopper at the Met Opera in New York, a new opera in, in um, you know, premiering in Australia next year and, um, and a pop career, astonishing. Queensland Conservatorium of Music in the late 90s and early noughties, they produced some extraordinary voices and Katie some extraordinary Noonan. artists. Katie Noonan came out of there. There's mm. people all around the world from Brisbane at that point who mm. were working. Yep. All happening in Queensland around that time, right? Yeah. I made out with one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> Um, also, another mention for CK, a um, really wonderful album and a very nice chilled soundtrack for when things get a bit stressful on the Guardian news desk. But also, I have to say, um, one of the songs that's... Well, there are two songs that have proved a bit of a soundtrack to me moving here. Before I got here, it was a song by Lasco called Aussie Girl, and it was all about falling in love with Australia. And, that, and like, that was like kind of a sort of... I was trying to program myself, you know, as I moved over here. But now I've got here, I've moved to Darlow. And it's the only thing I can say in an Aussie accent. Darlow, I live in Darlow. And uh, um, the go between Starlinghurst Nights is just like my complete soundtrack to my new <laughs> life. And I listen to it all the time on Spotify. And it's just, yeah, that combined with all the new music is just super fun. This is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. And we want to know what your favourite Australian album for 2014 was. Visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Guardian Australia Culture or on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture. 
Now it's our regular and newly christened segment, Fangirl, where we share the things that we're looking forward to next month. So I am going to go first because I'm so excited about January. I love January in uh, in Sydney in particular. Um, there's so much goodness. There's open air cinema and there's the lovely Sydney Festival, which we're going to talk about extensively in our next podcast. Um, but if I have to choose my Fangirl favourite this for January, it would be So Frenchy, So Frenchy, So Chic which is on in Melbourne at the Werribee Mansion and in Sydney at St. John's College, Camperdown. And this year we've got Emile Simon, uh, Ledeau, La Femme and Francois and the Atlas Mountains that are playing. And <gasps> I it, love that band. Absolutely. It's oh, amazing. Fantastic. It's a great music. There's great food, great champagne, of course. And you can lie around in the sun and just listen to and have a great afternoon. So that's what I will be doing in January. Uh, Nancy, what will you be doing? Well... I'll be spending a, a significant amount of time at the Sydney Festival, um, uh, which is preventing me from going to MoFo, but we're sending a, ni a nice Guardian pack off to Tasmania. Um, but actually, I have, as often I do in life, a horrible clash at the end of the month where I have a few months ago bought um, some tickets to see Bell and Sebastian at the Enmore. Can't wait. I actually haven't been to the Enmore yet, and I love that band too. And yet it's the night of the actors. And um, I think marking me out from a lot of different arts journalists, I love an award do, awards do, and actually seeing uh, seeing the uh, cream of the Australian crop uh, kind of walk up the red carpet, uh, I think I think I might have to be giving my Bell and Sebastian ticket away because I just can't take resist them. that one. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, interesting. Well, Anna, you're one of the pack going to MoFo. I am, yeah, I'm really excited. So um, I'm actually doing a seven-day hike prior to MoFo, so <laughs> I'll be um, glad to get back into some civilization. Um, but it's got a great lineup. I don't really know many of the artists on the lineup, but that's kind of what I like about MoFo is discovering new people. Mm, absolutely. Eamon, what are you going to be doing in January? I, I always <coughs> love the roulette of, um, of festival time in January and that you suddenly kind of go and see something that you've never heard of before. I, I always adore that. In, in January. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Leah Purcell back on stage at Belvoir for the first time in, in I think about nearly 17 years or something, in fact, at the Upstairs Theatre at Belvoir in, um, in uh, Louis Nara's play Radiance. Um, I just think Le Leah is, uh, look, I think she's amazing. I just <laughs> look up to her so much. She's remarkable. Um, um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing Robin Nevin yeah, do Tennessee Williams, actually, at the Sydney Theatre mm. Company. Absolutely, yep. that would be pretty. It's going to be great. Absolutely. Bridget, do you have a pick for January? Well, I too am going to Tasmania for the um, Arts Festival. But look, January is a great time for reading and it's when most people get to the stack of books that they've been waiting to read all year and have been too busy to get to. So um, I've just got a new Kindle and I have a backlog of, um, of books to read, too numerous to name right now. But I'll be reading in January and it's also a really great time um, to see live music, I find, particularly live music that's outdoors, that's in pubs, in parks. I love listening to the Triple J Hottest 100 on Australia Day weekend because I can catch up on all the music that I was meant to listen to all year. <laughs> and um, we'll be live blogging that again this year. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just I think it's just a great time to sort of get stick your head out of the office and mm. grab some fresh air. Absolutely. Yeah, in Absolutely. more ways than one. 
Well, that's it for this month and this year. So thank you for joining us. If you head over to theguardian.com and click on culture, uh, you will find our culture podcast page with a list of everything that we've talked about today and links to more information. We'd also love to chat to you on our Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page or on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture or send us your Instagram pictures uh, on our Instagram uh, feed, which is at GDN Oz Culture. You can follow all of us on Twitter. Follow me on uh, at Alex Spring. Follow Nancy on at Nancy Arts. Follow Anna at Anna underscore underscore Madeline. And follow Bridget on at Bridget WD. And follow Eamon. Eamon's going to be doing a lot more tweeting very soon. <laughs> at Eamon Flack. For now, thank you, Nancy. Thanks. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, Eamon. My pleasure. Thank you also to our producer, Miles, and to our technical wizard, Jason. We'll see you next month back here on the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.